Chapter 6 of Book 1 of The Wealth of Nations. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Chapter 6 of Book 1 of the Component Part of the Price of Commodities. In that early and rude state of society which precedes both the accumulation of stock and the appropriation of land, the proportion between the quantities of labor necessary for acquiring different objects seems to be the only circumstance which can afford any rule for exchanging them for one another. If among a nation of hunters, for example, it usually costs twice the labor to kill a beaver which it does to kill a deer, one beaver should naturally exchange for or be worth two deer. It is natural that what is usually the produce of two days or two hours labor should be worth double of what is usually the produce of one day's or one hour's labor. If the one species of labor should be more severe than the other, some allowance will naturally be made for this superior hardship, and the produce of one hour's labor in the one way may frequently exchange for that of two hours labor in the other. Or if the one species of labor requires an uncommon degree of dexterity and ingenuity, the esteem which men have for such talents will naturally give a value to their produce, superior to what would be due to the time employed about it. Such talents can seldom be acquired, but in consequence of long application, and the superior value of their produce may frequently be no more than a reasonable compensation for the time and labor which must be spent in acquiring them. In the advanced state of society, allowances of this kind, for superior hardship and superior skill, are commonly made in the wages of labor and something of the same kind must probably have taken place in its earliest and rudest period. In this state of things the whole produce of labor belongs to the laborer, and the quantity of labor commonly employed in acquiring or producing any commodity is the only circumstance which can regulate the quantity of labor which it ought commonly to purchase, command, or exchange for. As soon as stock has accumulated in the hands of particular persons, some of them will naturally employ it in setting to work industrious people, whom they will supply with materials and subsistence, in order to make a profit by the sale of their work, or by what their labor adds to the value of the materials. In exchanging the complete manufacture, either for money, for labor, or for other goods, over and above what may be sufficient to pay the price of the materials, and the wages of the workmen, something must be given for the profits of the undertaker of the work, who hazards his stock in his adventure. The value which the workmen add to the materials, therefore, resolves itself in this case into two parts, of which the one pays their wages, the other the profits of their employer upon the whole stock of materials and wages which he advanced. He could have no interest to employ them unless he expected from the sale of their work something more than what was sufficient to replace his stock to him, and he could have no interest to employ a great stock rather than a small one unless his profits were to bear some proportion to the extent of his stock. The profits of stock, it may perhaps be thought, are only a different name for the wages of a particular sort of labor the labor of inspection and direction. They are, however, altogether different, are regulated by quite different principles, and bear no proportion to the quantity, the hardship, or the ingenuity of this supposed labor of inspection and direction. They are regulated altogether by the value of the stock employed, and are greater or smaller in proportion to the extent of this stock. Let us suppose, for example, that in some particular place where the common annual profits of manufacturing stock are 10%, there are two different manufacturers, in each of which twenty workmen are employed, at the rate of fifteen pounds a year each, or at the expense of three hundred a year in each manufactory. Let us suppose, too, that the coarse materials annually wrought up in the one cost only seven hundred pounds, while the finer materials in the other cost seven thousand. 
the capital annually employed in the one will in this case amount only to one thousand pounds whereas that employed in the other will amount to seven thousand three hundred pounds at the rate of ten per cent therefore the undertaker of the one will expect a yearly profit of about one hundred pounds only while that of the other will expect about seven hundred and thirty pounds but though their profits are so very different their labour of inspection and direction may be either altogether or very nearly the same in many great works almost the whole labour of this kind is committed to some principal clerk his wages properly express the value of this labour of inspection and direction though in settling them some regard is had commonly not only to his labour and skill but to the trust which is reposed in him yet they never bear any regular proportion to the capital of which he oversees the management and the owner of this capital though he is thus discharged of almost all labour still expects that his profit should bear a regular proportion to his capital in the price of commodities therefore the profits of stock constitute a component part altogether different from the wages of labour and regulated by quite different principles in this state of things the whole produce of labour does not always belong to the labourer he must in most cases share it with the owner of the stock which employs him neither is the quantity of labour commonly employed in acquiring or producing any commodity the only circumstance which can regulate the quantity which it ought commonly to purchase command or exchange for an additional quantity it is evident must be due for the profits of the stock which advance the wages and furnish the materials of that labour as soon as the land of any country has all become private property the landlords like all other men love to reap where they never sowed and demand a rent even for its natural produce the wood of the forest the grass of the field and all the natural fruits of the earth which when land was in common cost the labourer only the trouble of gathering them come even to him to have an additional price fixed upon them he must then pay for the license to gather them and must give up to the landlord a portion of what his labour either collects or produces this portion or what comes to the same thing the price of this portion constitutes the rent of land and in the price of the greater part of commodities makes a third component part the real value of all the different component parts of price it must be observed is measured by the quantity of labour which they can each of them purchase or command labour measures the value not only of that part of price which resolves itself into labour but of that which resolves itself into rent and of that which resolves itself into profit in every society the price of every commodity finally resolves itself into some one or other or all of those three parts and in every improved society all the three enter more or less as component parts into the price of the far greater part of commodities in the price of corn for example one part pays the rent of the landlord another pays the wages or maintenance of the labourers in labouring cattle employed in producing it and the third pays the profit of the farmer these three parts seem either immediately or ultimately to make up the whole price of corn a fourth part it may perhaps be thought is necessary for replacing the stock of the farmer or for compensating the wear and tear of his labouring cattle and other instruments of husbandry but it must be considered that the price of any instrument of husbandry such as a labouring horse is itself made up of the same time parts the rent of the land upon which he is reared the labour of tending and rearing him and the profits of the farmer who advances both the rent of this land and the wages of this labour though the price of the corn therefore may pay the price as well as the maintenance of the horse the whole price still resolves itself either immediately or ultimately into the same three parts of rent labour and profit in the price of flour or meal we must add to the price of the corn the profits of the miller and the wages of his servants in the price of bread the profits of the baker and the wages of his servants 
and in the price of both the labour of transporting the corn from the house of the farmer to that of the miller and from that of the miller to that of the baker together with the profits of those who advance the wages of that labour the price of flax resolves itself into the same three parts as that of corn in the price of linen we must add to this price the wages of the flax dresser of the spinner of the weaver of the bleacher etc together with the profits of their respective employers as any particular commodity comes to be more manufactured that part of the price which resolves itself into wages and profit comes to be greater in proportion to that which resolves itself into rent in the progress of the manufacture not only the number of profits increase but every subsequent profit is greater than the foregoing because the capital from which it is derived must always be greater the capital which employs the weavers for example must be greater than that which employs the spinners because it not only replaces that capital with its profits but pays besides the wages of the weavers and the profits must always bear some proportion to the capital in the most improved societies however there are always a few commodities of which the price resolves itself into two parts only the wages of labour and the profits of stock and a still smaller number in which it consists altogether in the wages of labour in the price of sea-fish for example one part pays the labour of the fishermen and the other the profits of the capital employed in the fishery rent very seldom makes any part of it though it does sometimes as i shall show hereafter it is otherwise at least through the greater part of europe in river fisheries a salmon fishery pays a rent and rent though it cannot well be called the rent of the land makes a part of the price of a salmon as well as wares and profit in some parts of scotland a few poor people make a trade of gathering along the seashore those little variegated stones commonly known by the name of scotch pebbles the price which is paid to them by the stone-cutter is altogether the wages of their labour neither rent nor profit makes any part of it but the whole price of any commodity must still finally resolve itself into some one or other or all of those three parts as whatever part of it remains after paying the rent of the land and the price of the whole labour employed in raising manufacturing and bringing it to market must necessarily be profit to somebody as the price or exchangeable value of every particular commodity taken separately resolves itself into some one or other or all of those three parts so that of all the commodities which compose the whole annual produce of the labour of every country taken complexly must resolve itself into the same three parts and be parcelled out among different inhabitants of the country either as the wages of their labour the profits of their stock or the rent of their land the whole of what is annually either collected or produced by the labour of every society or what comes to the same thing the whole price of it is in this manner originally distributed among some of its different members wages profit and rent are the three original sources of all revenue as well as of all exchangeable value all other revenue is ultimately derived from some one or other of these whoever derives his revenue from a fund which is his own must draw it either from his labour from his stock or from his land the revenue derived from labour is called wages that derived from stock by the person who manages or employs it is called profit that derived from it by the person who does not employ it himself but lends it to another is called the interest or the use of money it is the compensation which the borrower pays to the lender for the profit which he has an opportunity of making by the use of the money part of that profit naturally belongs to the borrower who runs the risk and takes the trouble of employing it and part to the lender who affords him the opportunity of making this profit the interest of money is always a derivative revenue which if it is not paid from the profit which is made by the use of the money must be paid from some other source of revenue unless perhaps the borrower is a spendthrift who contracts a second debt in order to pay the interest of the first 
The revenue which proceeds altogether from land is called rent, and belongs to the landlord. The revenue of the farmer is derived partly from his labor and partly from his stock. To him, land is only the instrument which enables him to earn the wages of this labor and to make the profits of this stock. All taxes and all the revenue which is founded upon them, all salaries, pensions, and annuities of every kind, are ultimately derived from some one or other of those three original sources of revenue, and are paid either immediately or immediately from the wages of labor, the profits of stock, or the rent of land. When those three different sorts of revenue belong to different persons, they are readily distinguished, but when they belong to the same, they are sometimes confounded with one another, at least in common language. A gentleman who farms a part of his own estate, after paying the expense of cultivation, should gain both the rent of the landlord and the profit of the farmer. He is apt to denominate, however, his whole gain profit, and thus confounds rent with profit, at least in common language. The greater part of our North American and West Indian planters are in this situation. They farm, the greater part of them, their own estates, and accordingly we seldom hear of the rent of a plantation, but frequently of its profit. Common farmers seldom employ any overseer to direct the general operations of the farm. They generally, too, work a good deal with their own hands, as plowmen, harrowers, etc. What remains of the crop, after paying the rent, therefore, should not only replace to them their stock employed in cultivation, together with its ordinary profits, but pay them the wages which are due to them, both as laborers and overseers. Whatever remains, however, after paying the rent and keeping up the stock, is called profit. But wages evidently make a part of it. The farmer, by saving these wages, must necessarily gain them. Wages, therefore, are in this case confounded with profit. An independent manufacturer who has stock enough both to purchase materials and to maintain himself till he can carry his work to market, should gain both the wages of a journeyman who works under a master and the profit which that master makes by the sale of that journeyman's work. His whole gains, however, are commonly called profit, and wages are, in this case too, confounded with profit. A gardener who cultivates his own garden with his own hands unites in his own person the three different characters of landlord, farmer, and laborer. His produce, therefore, should pay him the rent of the first, the profit of the second, and the wages of the third. The whole, however, is commonly considered as the earnings of his labor. Both rent and profit are in this case confounded with wages. As in a civilized country there are but few commodities of which the exchangeable value arises from labor only, rent and profit contributing largely to that of the far greater part of them, so the annual produce of its labor will always be sufficient to purchase or command a much greater quantity of labor than what was employed in raising, preparing, and bringing that produce to market. If the society were annually to employ all the labor which it can annually purchase, as the quantity of labor would increase greatly every year, so the produce of every succeeding year would be of vastly greater value than that of the foregoing. But there is no country in which the whole annual produce is employed in maintaining the industrious. The idle everywhere consume a great part of it, and according to the different proportions in which it is annually divided between those two different orders of people, its ordinary or average value must either annually increase or diminish, or continue the same from one year to another. End of Book 1, Chapter 6